So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These are the words of our Lord. When I was um, in seminary, speaking of seminary, when I was in seminary, I remember a, a, a lecture that I heard from a professor who was talking about, um, the topic was the humanity of Jesus. And his point in this lecture was to basically say this, for many of us, God's um, divinity, Jesus's divinity, the fact that we believe and Christians profess that Jesus was God, kind of comes easy to us. But we tend to be kind of uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus was a man also. And he said, I'll prove it to you. He said, Jesus's humanity meant that Jesus went to the bathroom. <laughs> Bear with me. Jesus stubbed his toe when he was walking in the middle of the night to, uh, through, the, through a room or something. Jesus got a head cold, right? Uh, Jesus, when he was a baby, had his diaper to be changed, needed it to be changed. And, and I remember him distinctly sort of robbing me of some of my Christmas joy by talking about away in a manger. And he said, you know that part that it says, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he made? It was like, that's hogwash. <laughs> he was a baby, just like every other human baby. And I remember sitting there in my seat in school thinking to myself, I don't think he should be saying that. I mean, this is Jesus after all now. Let's not be blasphemous. <laughs> totally proving his point. Look, y'all, we come tonight in this quest to sort of figure out why it is that believing matters to this idea that Jesus was born of Mary, conceived by the Holy Ghost, but born of the Virgin Mary. And all I want to sort of pitch to you tonight is that the humanity of Jesus is huge for us. Life transforming. And if you could grasp three simple ideas, I think you'll agree with me that it's one of the major aspects of what the Apostles' Creed is trying to get across to us. We need to first of all understand the theology behind the idea. Secondly, we need to get the implication of the thought. And then finally, we'll see if we can figure out an application. The theology, the implications, and then the application. Okay, first of all, the theology. The theology is actually fairly easy to say, but is almost impossible to wrap your mind around. So just own that. Jesus, we say in Christian theology, was full deity. 
That is, when it says there in the passage that he was in the form of God, we believe that he was the same essence of God. That's why we use the word equality. Paul uses the word equality in the very same sentence. But Jesus was also full humanity as well. Notice what verse 8 says there in Philippians 2. It says that he was found in human form. In other words, he was in essence also a human being. In other words, and here's the way the phrasing goes, Jesus had two distinct natures, inseparable though between each other, one divine and one human in one simple person of, 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 of his character. In other words, his deity didn't sort of overshadow his humanity, and his humanity didn't like spoil his deity. In other words, he was, and interestingly enough, continues to be one person, two natures, as the theologians say, in a hypostatic union uh, with one another. Now, you don't have to know what hypostatic union is, but it's a fun phrase to drop at parties to make you sound important, right? That's the theology. It's simple to say. It's overwhelming to try to understand. And Christians have shed blood over making sure that people don't forget that fact and that formula of the way in which they phrased it, right? Now, the question is why? Why is it that we're so interested in saying that Jesus is fully God and yet fully man? Why the, the twin emphases? Well, it's fairly simple, I think. Look, if God, Jesus was all God and not man, then we have a little bit of a problem because he doesn't have any point of contact with us. He doesn't know what it's like to be us. In other words, he can come and sort of represent like God's justice to us, but he can't represent our sin problem to God. Does that make sense? But on the other hand, if Jesus is all man and no God, then there's no way for him to redeem us because he shares our need for redemption because we're in the same boat. Now look, the reason why we stress that is this, is because in Christianity, you have a God who is trying to come and mediate for his people. Now I want you to think about this for just a second. What does a good mediator do? A good mediator has to, in some sense, you know, mediator, come between, He's got to be able to represent both people on either side. Have you ever thought about this? Let me give you an example. Let's imagine, this is a sort of a terrible illustration, but we'll look at it for, for uh, illustrations purposes. Let's imagine that you have a friend who lost a parent. Tragic, heartbreaking family loss of losing a parent. Some of you in this room have actually experienced this. And there are two friends that go to comfort your friend who lost their parent. The first one comes and uh, simply comes to sympathize with the person. In other words, they look and say, I feel very badly for what it is that you're going through. The second person, however, empathizes with your friend. You want to know why? Because they've lost a parent too. Whenever I get a chance to speak to people who are going through that kind of life-shifting, earth-shattering tragedy, they all say the same thing. They're like, whenever I meet somebody who's been through it too, it somehow comforts me so much more. Don't you know that? Look, y'all, at the very heart of Christian theology is a God who shows up in the fullness of humanity 
and yet at the same time, the fullness of his godness, and says, therefore, I can understand both. I can go between. I can truly mediate. In other words, Jesus knows. He knows. <laughs> He's not unaware. Now, look, we call this, in theological terms, Jesus' incarnation. You ever heard that word? And the word literally means just to take on flesh, right? Incarne, carne, maybe you've had chili, con carne, which is chicken, uh, chili without meat in it, without flesh in it, carne. Jesus was incarnated. He took on flesh. Look at this. And the interesting thing about this, you don't really get the, the beautiful picture of this until you see it happening at Christmas. I'm a huge Christmas fan. And truthfully, this sermon probably should have been preached at Christmas, closer to, uh, uh, to Christmas time. But I am always amazed at rethinking what exactly it is that Christians believe about Christ Christmas. Because in the beauty of Christmas, you have the intersection, in many ways, the ultimate intersection of heaven and earth. And the intersection is such that the story is almost stressing how bizarre the intersection was. I want you to think about this. If you were going to write the Bible and you were going to have Jesus show up and you believe that Jesus is God, like, how are you going to portray that? My guess is you're like, okay, first thing we're going to start with is light. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to do some thunder. Then after that, we got some lightning bolts coming out from the light after that. Then, I don't know, maybe some, you know, some, um, I don't know, some, some earthquakes or something, right? And then music, we'll have music or something. <laughs> no, 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 no. What you find in the story of Christmas is this mind-blowing glory in the context of the simplest and most lowly places. In other words, it's everything that you want, but it's nothing that you would expect. Because there you find a poor virgin who gets pregnant, go figure, Okay. And all of a sudden, the only person that's there to greet his coming is a mighty angelic choir who shows up in all of its glory to some rednecks sitting out in the field tending sheep, the shepherds. In other words, it would have been, it would have been like the sort of 21st century equivalent of God announcing his coming at a truck stop or something. You have the king who finally comes to save his people. And where will you find him? You'll find him in a peasant's house on the side of the house where the animals are stored in a feed trough. In other words, what you see is the highest spiritual truth cloaked in the most ordinary physical world. What is Christmas saying? Christmas is saying is that now at last heaven and earth have met in this person. That there is suddenly full humanity in Christianity. You have something that other religions grasp at but can't get to, which is how do I see these two things intersect? And it comes in Jesus' humanity. Okay, that's the theology. First point. Set that aside somewhere. Secondly, so then what's the implication? Because I know what you're thinking. I can read it on your faces on Wednesday nights. You're looking at yourself saying, wow, that's 10 minutes that I'll never get back of my life. I Glad that I came tonight, but I can't leave now because it's too crowded to walk over people. Why did I come tonight to hear something as dry and dusty as that sort of theology? But look, look, look. Set aside our natural cynicism for just a moment, please, and realize, or, or, or at least let me pitch to you, 
that nothing could be more life transformational than this thought. It is a radical idea. The idea that Jesus was fully human but also divine has always been thought of to be ridiculous to people in human history. Not the least of which for the people that initially read, uh, the the Bible was initially sent to. Look, the, the history is fairly clear that Jewish people had no category prior to the coming of Jesus, or at least this message, that God would actually become a human. That was not on their list of expectations. Much less did sort of what you would call um, Greco-Roman society at that time. Because you see, those folks, the, the sort of Greek-Roman culture at that time, thought that the body, hum, our, our physicality, if you will, was by nature evil, right? In other words, God couldn't take on human flesh without him being polluted. And then, of course, East, Eastern cultures that were around during that time and still operative today believed that the material world was an illusion, you know, the, the, the physicality that we have around us is not really the real you. Now look, all of that teaching represents one of Christianity's first theological enemies. And you cannot go through four years of college without at least knowing this word. The word is Gnosticism. It's actually sort of spelled weird because it starts with a G. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism. What the Gnostic taught was basically this. To really be somebody who's going to follow after God, you need to focus on the spiritual, the life of the mind, this sort of hidden knowledge that gets into your head. That's what the word gnosis means. Uh, Gnosis means knowledge, to know something. And the body, your material existence, the physical world, is either beside the point, or maybe it's annoying, or downright evil in certain forms. Gnosticism. And here's the deal. Gnosticism was and continues to be one of Christianity's biggest enemies. I would actually pitch to you that American Christianity, when she is pressed for answers, sort of defaults into Gnostic categories, right? And I give you my two famous examples. And the funny thing is, is I keep referring to this. And I'm hoping to purge it from a certain generation of college students' minds. But I get this two examples. The first one is this. I get this question all the time where people ask me questions about heaven. Les, what do you think about heaven, right? And you'll ask the same question. Let me ask you a question, Les. Do you think that we'll know each other in heaven? And notice what the question sort of assumes, because my usual answer is, well, of course, why would we not? Because there's this assumption that once we get to heaven, that we'll be on like a cloud, right? With a, I don't know, with a robe or a harp or wings, (laughs) Or maybe we'll just be spirits sort of floating through eternity, right? And so we start to wonder, I wonder if we'll know each other. Look, it is very hard for us to get into our head that God's created order, our bodies, are not inherently sinful. And there's no inherent problem in the fact that you're a material being. None whatsoever. As a matter of fact, Christianity has always taught, and we'll build on this as the semester goes on, that there is a redemption that's coming that is a material redemption. In other words, when Jesus does, in Christian teaching, come back and sort of redeem the earth, he's going to redeem the earth. And we're all going to get, guess what, new bodies. Bodies which we assume will be continuous with the ones that we have now. Actually, there'll be bodies very much like the body that Jesus had when he was raised from the dead. Paul says he was the first fruits of many brethren. More to that to come later on the semester. 
But I can tell that we sort of don't like physicality by the way in which we assume heaven's going to be. Wrong. Heaven is going to be a place where I assume we'll have conversations just like this one. Thank you very much. Look, I wonder if that's the reason why you wrote off Christianity when you did. Because I want to challenge you, if you wrote off Christianity on that basis, you rejected a caricature, not the genuine article. Okay, second illustration. This one's a little more subtle. Have you ever found yourself praying prayers like this that went sort of like, God, why won't you just take this struggle away from me? You know, I mean, why won't you just make my feelings for this person disappear? Why won't you just relieve me of this temptation that's constantly plaguing me? Why won't you just take it away, God? I get this question all the time. In other words, what we want is the magical transformation for God to sort of wave his magic wand, right? And what we don't want to realize is, is that that's not the way God works. You want to know why? Because God works through the stuff you do. <laughs> In other words, he would like for his eternity to intersect, are you ready? With the actual things you do on a day-in and day-out basis. Now some of you are saying, is that a mystery? Yes, it is. It's a mystery for a lot of religious people, even a lot of Christian people. Because you, there's, there's an interesting reaction that often comes in the face of people when you start to talk about what the Bible says. And various cultures get offended by different things depending on what your culture is. But there's times in which the Bible will come in and say that God cares about, God cares about how much alcohol you put into your body. He cares in such a way that he says, I don't want you to put so much into your body that you become drunk. <laughs> Very simple. And of course we find, and I can tell, because we find ourselves things like, well, okay, okay, whoa now. All right, easy does it there, cowboy. You know, let's not get all overly dramatic about this. Or maybe you start talking about the Ten Commandments and you get to this whole idea of resting one day in seven and picking a day where you actually set your your um your studies aside and rest from those things. And we mean like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, let's not get all legalistic here. In other words, it's almost like whenever the transcendent truths of God <laughs> actually have to ask me to like do something, somehow Southern Christianity is just kind of like, oh, <sighs> you know what it is? It's Gnosticism. And Paul and everyone else, and Jesus as well, is trying to stress and say, that is not God's way. Let me ask you a question. Is your religion a pure abstraction? You know what I mean by that? This idea that it exists only in your mind. In other words, your, your thing with God, it's just really theoretical, it's a thing that I dabble in, that I sort of mull over. Whew. Look, y'all, Jesus became a man. He took on a body. And you know what that means? It means that I can't put into my body anything I want. It means that God has rights over the places where I let my eyes fall. It means that God has a right to tell me what I can and cannot do with my genitals. Did he just say that? Yes, he did. It means that God has rights over the words that come out of my mouth. You want to know why? Because God became a man. 
That's what the incarnation means. It means that Jesus comes and gets all up in our business because of my humanity. Now look, I realize that's kind of negative, but I want you to think about the positive aspect of this, though, before we move on. Because if Jesus entered our world, you do realize that if that's the case, there's no such thing as the mundane. There's no such thing as the boring. Because if he was fully human, then your humanity matters. It matters. And it means that what you see and do and feel and taste in this world is cosmically significant. It means the fact that you're here at RUF tonight is important. (laughs) It means the words that you'll say after tonight is important. It means that the concert that you go to tonight and the music that you listen to, that you're enriched by and thrilled by and excited by and amazed by, is real. (laughs) Real enough to glory in. Yes, I did hear about the concert that's tonight. (laughs) Look, here's an illustration for that really quickly. Have you ever, if any of you have been to a psychiatrist, okay, Oftentimes, a psychiatrist, when you first meet with them and you're experiencing all this crazy inner stuff in your heart and your mind, wherever you want to locate it, you know one of the first things he'll often do? He'll get you trying to sleep properly. You'll go crazy in college not sleeping well. Some of you could raise your hands and be like, yeah. Uh, you'll go, to, you'll get, go crazy in college uh, not eating well. Huh. Some of you others would be like, yeah. In other words, the psychiatrist knows intuitively that if we can create some stability in your, you ready, body, it sometimes creates more stability in our spirits. You want to know why? Because you were created to be a body-spirit unity. So much so that the separation of your spirit from your body in what we call death is unnatural. Uh, bad (laughs) okay we come up to we we go to funerals and we look down and we see bodies in caskets horrific sights by the way and we comfort ourselves with saying well you know what we know that that's not really uncle fred uncle fred was his spirit you know that's gone now and i always want to be like "Mm, no that actually is uncle fred see that's uncle fred's body And one day, Jesus says that if Uncle Fred knew Jesus, he's actually going to have that body raised up again to a new body that will never pass away. And they'll be united again forever. You and and your body will live together for forever. And that's supposed to be good news for us because it means that my life is significant. Okay, thirdly and finally, what does all this mean? Is there some way to apply this? Well, I think we can. Because we need to apply it in the same way that Paul applies it in Philippians chapter 2 that James read for us. What Jesus' incarnation means is that every Christian's life is marked by, you ready? Humility. That's the lesson. Look, the Philippians were having trouble getting along. Why? Because they were not looking at their lives like Jesus looked at his life. You see, Jesus was one who what? Set his glory aside. You see, he emptied himself. Now, that doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. That's the wrong way to read this. What he did was he emptied himself, you ready? By taking something on, namely the likeness of a servant. That, what I just told you in one sentence, is the key to real humility because very few of us really understand this. Let me me take another example. Look at verse 3. Paul looks and says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Underline that word conceit. That's a big word. That word in the Greek is the word kenodoxian, all right? And it comes from two words. One word, kenosis, means empty. 
Doxa, from which we get like doxology, things like that, means glory. So you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that these people's problem is, is that they are all glory empty. Ooh, that's good. This is where word studies will actually work on you. The problem with you Philippians is, is you are glory empty. In other words, you are starved for attention. And because you're starved for attention, you are hopelessly focused on yourselves. I heard one preacher say that basically this sort of self-focus shows up in all kinds of ways. Number one, it shows up in drivenness. Are you a driven person? Better yet, would your friends describe you as driven? In other words, can you not slow down? Because the truth of the matter is, is I'm always comparing myself to somebody else. Drivenness, it's a lack of humility. Secondly, scornfulness is a sign of lack of humility. You know, you know what scornfulness is? It's sort of that, um, that sarcastic cynicism. <laughs> For some of us, the only way in which we know how to talk to each other. Because we have to put others down in order to make ourselves look good in comparison. Thirdly and finally, the preacher said that the lack of uh, this, this sort of self-glory uh, empty will also uh, um, manifest itself in self-consciousness. We can't be humble because we're so aware of ourselves all the time. I wonder how many of y'all have ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Screwtape Letters. This is a great book. It's a little freaky when you read it because it's a book that's a collection of letters from a senior devil or demon to a young junior demon, okay? Uh, Uncle Screwtape is writing to his nephew Wormwood, okay? You got to read this. It's a fascinating sort of read. But at one point, Lewis gives this description of humility. This is the senior demon talking to a young demon. Bear with me. He says, I see your patient, that's the Christian, has become humble. Have you drawn attention to that fact? Catch him at the moment that he's really poor in spirit and then smuggle into his mind, I'm being humble. And pride in his own humility will suddenly appear abjection and self-hatred can do as much good for us if they keep the man concerned with himself and self-contempt can be the starting point of a life contentious of all other selves. Did you catch that? Self-contempt, I'm so awful, can itself be the way to actually hold other selves in contempt and therefore a life that's filled with gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. So let your patient think of humility not as self-forgetfulness, but as a low opinion of his own talent and character. Ooh, did you hear that? <laughs> Look, y'all, Christian humility is not thinking little of yourself. It's not even thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. You want to know why? <laughs> because you're not glory empty. Jesus could set his glory aside. Do you want to know Why? Because he knew his real glory was not threatened. Because his real glory was with God the Father. And it was, as it were, a reservoir that allowed him to say, I don't have to cling, or as the verse says, to grasp hold of my inherent glory. I can set it aside in the service to others. Are you seeing the point? <laughs> Look, y'all, one of the reasons why we're not humble is because we're so we are so self-absorbed. This campus is thick with it. <laughs> Freshman girls, come and talk to me about being self-absorbed. They're watching me. 
Jesus did not hold on to his glory. You know what he did? He kenosised himself. Jesus wasn't humble because he was trying to be humble. <laughs> That's the opposite of humility. What he did was he started pouring his life out to others. That's the key. Folks, we start being humble when we begin to invest ourselves in someone else's life. Jesus left all the things that defined him from eternity so that he could pursue us. And you know what he would do? To make us to where we are not glory empty. You see, Jesus fills us up so that we can do the same thing. What Christians have discovered is they thought, wait, 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 wait. So God loves me that much. So much so with a salvation that even I can't mess up. And that suddenly becomes a reservoir out of which we look and say, what was I worried about? Of course I can extend myself into the life of this person. The incarnation means that it's okay for you to go into that other person's life. <laughs> that it's okay to look at that person and say, you know what? It very well may be that this person steps on me and abuses me. But you know what? I've got a reservoir. I'm not glory empty. God has granted me something beyond that. And so therefore I can pour myself out to them. Look, y'all, Jesus did not come just to save souls. He came to change lives and cities and neighborhoods and families. And it's not just a spiritual salvation. It's a physical salvation that typically meets it. You, that you typically don't meet until you find it in the face of another person, in the face of another body. C.S. Lewis said that your neighbor is the holiest object that you have encountered tonight. You look into the another, another person's face, you speak words to them, you give comfort to them, you might even pull out some money to offer them, you expend your time for them. And suddenly you come face to face with the meaning of the incarnation. So this is my sort of question slash invitation. <laughs> Do you believe that Jesus was born? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to believe that. But for whatever reason, we tend to always set you aside. We are infected with this desire to put you as far away from us as we can. And it is a devilish desire. It is a Gnostic enemy of your truth that, Lord Jesus, you came in a body. And so that means you care about what we do with our bodies. And it also means that you came to do something in us that would allow us to go and help save the lives of other bodies. <laughs> We need your help to see this because we don't see clearly. We are clouded by bad thinking. We're clouded by bad understanding about ourselves. Would you clarify that by your Holy Spirit? And that maybe somebody might come along to realize that they had rejected a caricature of you and not the real thing. Would you do that? We would be all the richer if you did. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.